um, to people uh, who never learned about Ukraine. Ukraine is very diverse, um, both within its people, within the society. It has uh, the traditions um, uh, that exist in different localities of Ukraine to its nature. Ukraine um, is very diverse, would be my say to all those people. This podcast shows that Ukraine is not what foreigners see on television. In reality, Ukrainian people are much better, much more interesting and friendly than other people expect. This podcast is about the real life, experiences, work and personalities of Ukrainian people with a focus on the capital Kiev, so that foreigners discover the positive truth about Ukraine hear the voices of Ukrainians, visit the country and invest in the economy, creating more opportunities for the younger Ukrainian generations to stay and build their country. Hello, my name is Aziz, and I have a deep connection with Ukraine. My grandfather volunteered in 1987 to help liquidate the Chernobyl chemical radiation because he believed in humanity. He was a real hero for me. And even though he struggled with cancer after that, for the rest of his life, he always told me many great things about Ukraine and its people. Then from 2018 to 2019, for two years, I began working with UNICEF in Ukraine to help build orphanages for the children who lost their families in the war. I couldn't return to Ukraine in 2020 because of COVID-19. So this project is my volunteer work to help Ukraine. And thank you all so much for the support. This podcast now is ranked number one on Apple Podcasts about Ukraine. Top 100 travel podcasts in France, Switzerland, and Ireland. Top 60 travel podcasts in the United Kingdom, and in Norway, top 15 Sweden, in Canada, in Italy, and in Spain, top 25 travel podcasts on Apple Russia, top 20 on Apple Poland and in the Netherlands, and top 10 in Finland, Romania, Cyprus, and South Korea. So please keep supporting as we will reach together 100 interviews and many more and follow the Instagram about this project, aziz.future. My guest today is Andriy Kashersky. From a small town in West Ukraine to the Thorpe High School in the USA as part of the FLEX Future Leaders Exchange Program, where he was a member of the Future Business Leaders of America, to now doing a double major undergrad in data science and history, at Minerva Schools at KGI, studying in seven different cities, San Francisco, London, Seoul, Hyderabad, Berlin, Taipei, and Buenos Aires, and research assistant at Minerva Schools at KGI, a small business consultant intern at the Minerva Project, and a student researcher at the World Smart Sustainable Cities Organization in Seoul, South Korea. 
from a community volunteer at the St. Anthony Foundation advocating for human rights to an event volunteer at the Commonwealth Club of California promoting education. Andri was also the founder of the social initiative Iceberg in his hometown, Sudova Vishnia, within NGO Cactus, Community Action Ukrainian Style. He was the head project organizer and the committee chairperson at the European Youth Parliament, a city representative at the American Councils for International Education. He is 20 years old. Andriy, how are you today? Hello, Aziz. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Enthusiastic, excited, and I want to explore another part of you. I want to <laughs> show the world the Andri that not many people know. So I will ask you this, which I asked to Diana, but I asked it later. And with you, I want it from the beginning. When you okay. want to creatively relax, enjoy yourself, and feel that creative, human, expressive part, what do you do? Diana, for example, does poetry. Do you have such a mm -hmm. thing? Yeah, I do something that is like less chilling. I go hiking and then I can do poetry on like the top of the mountains or something. I try to escape to like uh, some places that are outside cities, outside towns to go hiking. Um, and then I explore my creative passions there, which can be drawing or um, poetry too. Great. So imagine now you have hiked you're on the top of a hill or a mountain, and you're ready to write poetry or to paint. What is special about that experience? Um, special about that experience is, I guess, being um, just alone with your thoughts and reflecting what ha on what has been done in like the past months, couple of years, um, I mean, couple of months, probably in the past year, um, and then putting that reflection into words or drawings um, on top of like the hill or a mountain. Thank you. And I noticed you said specifically outside the cities, which remind me of Desmond Morris's book, The Human Zoo. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book from 1969, where he was arguing that cities are in reality human zoos and we're living in cages, and that it's not good for the psychology of humans to be there, that it causes depression and a low state similar to animals who are in cages in zoo, and we need to have time where we return to nature because inspiration happens when you connect with nature. Well, that's what he says. To you, do you have such a feeling and escaping? You use escape from your troubles and from the city so is this something relevant for you i think um yeah escape can be a right word however for me it's more of a um like taking a pause and thinking through what has been done reflecting reflecting on like the experience that you you had in cities um i originally come from a very small town and i was raised i was born and raised um in a, like a place with uh, so much nature and i did a lot of reflections and i I don't know, I feel I felt very creative um, living in a small town. Um, like you said, um, it inspires people. It did inspire me a lot. Cities inspired me too. But I think um, definitely because of like the networks and um, density and so many experiences and you being able to interact with so many people, which is a great thing about cities, it sometimes can get overwhelming and you do need to get um, a pause. But I wouldn't think of it as um, like, 
escaping my own troubles, just taking a pause and reflecting. I like that. You're being very precise. I'm really wondering why you didn't choose to become a lawyer, because those tend to be focused on uh, that really specific, precise definitions of terms. And since we're speaking about precise definitions of terms, you mentioned in five minutes, creative twice. What does creative, creativity, and creating mean for you? Oh, what it means for me, I guess, is um, not just getting creative um, alone with your ideas, but maybe trying to fit your ideas um, into different contexts. Like, um, I, I think I keep doing it a lot in my um, studies because uh, I'm studying basically computer science on like one um, side. And on, on another side, there's a lot more creative um, thinking, philosophical humanities side, which I'm currently doing history. So I think um, by doing that, like a specific example could be that um, I thought a lot about like applying data science into like historical research or more creative industries, which then for me forms this definition of creativity as uh, like pouring into making something that is like unconventional, different and interesting for you and for others. Um, Yeah, not very traditional, but also you might get a feeling like you are are escaping from um, like reality or routine by making that something that something that is interesting and different. Interesting and different and applying data science to history and historical research. Well, fundamentally, do you believe that history repeats itself? I think I do. Because I think we can trace so many um, historical legacies as of now within like systematic natures of our like governmental systems, the issues we're getting, um, uh, probably even the movements we're having in different societies. I feel like those movements remind us that history is repetitive and we cannot just let go of what has been done in the past. And if it was like reinforced over time, the ideas of it. Yeah. Thank you. So now I have to play the devil's advocate a little bit and bring Richard, Richard Bandler's point, who says history is his story and that the winner is the one who gets to write the, the history, that the history is not really objective, but in many ways, it's whoever the person who gets to write the history is the one who controls the narrative. What is your perspective on these thoughts? I yeah I definitely agree that history tends to be a lot a lot a lot of um, tend to have a lot a lot of subjectivities um, and the way it is written actually like I think the um, study of history that way is called historiography it's more about like looking at what people have written about history what are the contexts that um, the histories had been produced what are like the politics behind the influences so I definitely agree with him. But I also believe that uh, we can look back at more like primary sources, understanding the context and um, seeing how the history was written to rewrite it or reconsider what was done in the past so that we do not take um, history that we are like uh, presented at school as true. I think there is still room for improvement and uh, rewriting or uh, not reimagining, but actually like 
looking for facts and understanding the context of how it was written before to understand with what like motives was it written um, to be more aware of its um, like very foundational nature at, at the very beginning so so that we change our mind about it um, at this point if we have, have enough evidence and we do enough analytics. Thank you. And it seems to me, and correct me if this is wrong, that you believe that life is a state of cause and effect, that if we know the right causes that lead to a certain outcome, we can get that outcome. And therefore, learning from history is about knowing the causes that, for example, caused a negative event and stopping those will stop the replication of that and knowing if there are societies or events that were positive, why they happened and replicating that through cause and effect. Is this a fair understanding? Um, yes, I partially agree that there is cause and effect and we can establish that cause and effect, especially like having like that's a major part of data science, establishing cause and effect and causal inference. But I think there's also um, like a, there's also a component to it, like randomness or uh, even like the studies of chaos that anything can happen. Like you can predict that this um, cause will, least, will, will lead to that specific um, effect. But in fact, it also depends on like the future context of it. And we might not be 100% sure that it will happen. I think it's much more um, easier with the studies of the past, establishing that cause and effect when we are aware of that the effect had happened. But um, when predicting and thinking of the future, I think um, that's a bit harder. Thank you. So you believe that the future is probabilistic. And therefore, I have to ask you an even deeper question. And if you check the Stanford YouTube channel, there is there a lecture called Chaos and Reductionism, and it's by Professor Robert Sapolsky. And in there, in many ways, he argues for something that I will ask you about. He argues that even in science and all that thought about trying to establish causes and effects, in reality, that is reductionism, and that life is chaos, and all we know it's in many ways, everything is affecting everything at the same time, and therefore you cannot have a clean scientific determination of the variables and isolation of one variable to determine what is happening, and therefore you cannot really have a clean, scientific, clear pattern. And I will take it even further, the brain as a pattern-making machine. And I remember a really funny uh, scientific study they did on pigeons where they will just give them randomly food. There was a dispensary that would uh, give them food at random situations. And what happens mm -hmm. is that the pigeons, they will do a movement and they happen to be doing a movement when the food comes, for example, tilting their beak or their head to the left. And when the food comes, they will think, oh my God, is this the pattern? And then they keep on turning, 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 turning uh, their head to the left. And then the next time the food comes, they think, oh, wow. They will obsessively keep turning their head to the left, which is part of imagining patterns that are not there. So you, in your studies and about history and even about data, often 
there might be clear patterns who aren't even there. They're just part of the randomness um, that happens in life. And if you study more about randomness, you know randomness doesn't look random. It looks like streaks of patterns that change. Mm -hmm. So how do you approach this huge influence of randomness on any conclusions you might draw, knowing that maybe it's imaginary and we cannot really know because the factors at play are infinite? That, that's a really great question. And I do remember that study uh, and patterns. Um, I think there is a lot of computational research currently happening in data science, computer science about like um, accounting for that randomness and uh, what, uh, how like, how can robust models be affected, like robust predictive, model, how, how ro robust predictive models, how they can be affected by um, the amount of randomness um, so I think researchers are accounting for that. Uh, for me personally, like if uh, we are thinking about like decision making and uh, accounting for all variables, yes, I agree that it, it is a reductionist because we are accounting for like a limit of variables that we ourselves are defining for like the models for the predictions. And there are um, other confounding variables which we might not think of at the moment that can be like contextual. But I think there are ways to go around that, as I said, like computational research advancing and accounting for that uh, randomness. I think it's much easier if we are predicting or making decisions right now that are to happen like in the very near future. I think that's it's much easier to do such decisions if we have um, more like data and um, especially like da data with regards to time that is very close to us as of now, I think that might help us like eliminate um, any p potential like um, it will make our inferences maybe stronger because we are very close to making that decision, right? If we're given the current data, I think we can also, yeah, have stronger decisions because we are having resources to like, um, make the most effective decisions as of now. And if we are making decisions now, then um, I would argue they might not be that uh, having that big of an influence of randomness on them. Yeah. Thank you. And this is great since we're speaking about decision-making. So I will inject into the discussion the point of Shane Parrish, where he says, instead of optimizing for one decision, Optimize for all possible scenarios, as especially trying to eliminate the outliers that can totally destroy your ability to continue and to move forward, which would be the black swan events. And therefore, to ask you, do you agree with him or with uh, Martin Lancy, who's a LinkedIn executive that I did interview and he was saying look all entrepreneurs maybe statistically not betting on one thing is the right move but in practice entrepreneurs should make one decision about one thing and put all their focus on it and that will be the final decision unless they get real feedback that it's not working so that's his opinion while shan parish says maybe in the short term you look less amazing because you're uh, di you're dividing your resources on multiple scenarios but when the black swan events happen you'll be more protected than other people and therefore it's much better like you were saying when we have more data 
we can make better short-term decisions. What he is saying is that look for all possible alternatives and prepare for all of them, even if that is less optimal in the short term. In the long term, you will survive more black swan events and therefore you end up succeeding more long term. Well, Martin Lancy says, yes, statistically that is true, but focus really is what leads to the outcome you want. Or as Peter Drucker would say, the best way to predict the future is to create it yourself. What is your comment on this? Oh, wow. That's a very good question. Um, a lot of thinking behind. And I think um, that it, there's also like a cognitive slash strate- strategical part um, behind. Because like if you are um, more risk seeking, you will probably focus more on one thing. Um, but if you are more risk averse, then you'll try to invest in and like allocate resources into different alternatives as you said i think it also depends on how many alternatives you have because you might not be able to invest into all of the alternatives also like the probabilities of alternatives happening and being successful um plays a big part in decision making but uh, my stance on it if i it it really depends on the context but if i was given like different alternatives then i would probably pick a few of them knowing that maybe for um like different periods of time, they will all have like a, a good outcome of my investment of like time, time and resources on those alternatives. But then at the very end, I might just end up with a one successful one. And I think that would be my more risk averse approach uh, from like a more strate- strategic side. But also I am personally, I think more risk averse than risk seeking and that would come more natural to um, invest into several alternatives rather than just one. Thank you. That reminds me of Robert Kiyosaki, where he said people tell him that 90% of businesses fail. So he started 10 businesses and then he doesn't care which one will succeed because he knows that nine will fail and one will prevail, if we might say. And uh, you're a lover of poetry, so that might be a good rhyme right there. And to ask you then, on a more personal level, if you had to choose, let's say you can change everything you wish in the world, you can make humanity happy, resources bountiful, you need to do nothing. And you can spend your perfect day either in the mountain writing poetry and doing art, or studying history, or focusing on data science, and you cannot do any other forever. It's like uh, a really cruel heaven, (laughs) which is forever, you have to choose one of these three, which would be the one that will stand out the most and will be the right choice for your heart and to you personally? Yeah, without even like thinking much, um, I've been thinking a lot my life, like from the community I come from, um, and generally by living in different cities and countries that um, I would, I'm, I'm just, I care more about other people being happy uh, rather than just me being happy and enjoying what I love. That's just my approach. And I think I would definitely go with the first choice, which does sound a lot like utopia and it couldn't be done without like, within like a very short term. Um, but I would definitely go with the first option if that, we, if that is possible. Thank you. And was there a moment or a story or an event in your life where you felt the 
good feeling that comes from helping other people and that made you choose, wow, this is something important. I will focus on it in my life. Yeah, back home in Ukraine when I was 16, I was still in high school and I was um, implementing this project, like initiative for um, Saturday schools um, in the area where um, I uh, come from. Um, And that school only had, um, it was an elementary school and it only had about um, 30 students out of all classes. Um, And I went um, to that school for about um, four to five months and I taught them on Saturdays. And I think that was like the very first project I have ever done um, with like a goal of helping students in rural areas, the one I came from. Um, And that's, I think, after seeing so many happy faces and students engaging with me and even calling me at like random evenings after the project was done, uh, I think made me realize that helping others in general, I find very fulfilling and uh, way more meaningful for me than just um, doing the stuff I love that is like very personal. Um, I just loved uh, seeing them benefit from the project I was doing with my friends. Yes. Their happy faces, them calling you outside work hours and benefiting from the work you do. And even on a bigger picture, since you focus on history and there is always looking for the bigger narrative. Well, why is that meaningful to you at a bigger level? Um, I think a part of it is probably gross mindset that I was um, that I learned like recently about maybe over the last two years a lot seeing how um, students, uh, people of different ages can improve and um, can like I can see differences happening in their academics, in the way they approach um, like connecting with other people. That That's what I was seeing, what happened within like community of those students, how they bonded. And I think uh, like a bigger picture of me is just how probably they became open-minded because there was an emphasis on cultures um, and learning stuff that they wouldn't necessarily learn at school and I think they started becoming more open-minded and I liked seeing that they were learning not alone by themselves but just in a group and that was more of a collective learning and figuring out maybe some mistakes or um, yeah just um, learning together collectively Um, that was one of like the highlights that I saw uh, from the benefits, but becoming open-minded and just learning about new things, constantly learning and growing, probably relates to like a bigger picture of why that was important to me. Okay. If you had to choose one and you had to choose it and you cannot choose another, so it's another cruel question. One is collective learning. Second is improvement. Third is open-mindedness. Which one is more meaningful to you? Well, I think they are, um, a lot of it is very related because like if you break each term down or activities that would relate to each term, I think they are related. Um, maybe. How? Um, I think a lot of, uh, so the words were collective learning and the last one, remind me. Improvement. No, I said collective improvement, improvement and open-mindedness. And those are your words. If you want to change the learning, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I kept thinking about learning because I thought it's related to all of them. But I think, well, again, like collective open-mindedness, I think they are related because um, 
at one hand, you have been taught something collectively, I guess, that you overcome with open-mindedness. Um, it's hard for me to choose one. Uh, personally, I think all of them are like at different stages of your life or through different things you do. Um, they just all relate magically. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So let's focus on one. Why is non-open-mindedness, whatever that might be called, not some something you dislike? Why is non-open not why is non-open-mindedness something I dislike? Right? Yes. Or why is it a negative? Why not? I'm just trying to explore how you think. Mm-hmm. So let's begin. Like in math, sometimes you can prove something, but often it's proven that it's not wrong is <laughs> the way mm-hmm. to find it right so i'm going with the opposite non-open-mindedness why is that negative i see um well you bring up math I'll, i guess i'll bring up history because that's something i was thinking about like recently about um historical legacies of the past as i can, think i mentioned at the very beginning um we can see um the like the reinforcement of different narratives about um other people, cultures, countries over and over, happening over um, years. And I think that non-open-mindedness in this um, way, um, in this like context would be being ignorant of the histories and how we constructed what we have constructed. And I think open-mindedness would be overcoming and maybe analyzing what we have constructed and overcoming that um, construct and realizing like the negative side of non-open-mindedness. Because I think non-open-mindedness is very limiting um, in pretty much all the, I think, all the spheres of our lives. Thank you. And please correct me if this is a wrong understanding. But what I am sensing is the link between them is this. Ignorance is bad. It's something you really dislike. And therefore... To escape from ignorance, the first step is open-mindedness or being open to learning or improvement mindset, as you were speaking about. And I love that book that you said you read recently. So the first step, there is ignorance. Someone needs to be open-minded. And when they're open-minded, they can learn, which is improvement. But if they learn alone, alone, they will not notice all the possible mistakes because you mentioned specifically when you spoke about collective learning that each one each person will share experiences and they will discover mistakes and exceptions etc so when someone learns alone it's limiting because they have blind spots but when they are in a collective each person illuminates the blind spots of the learning and therefore it's more holistic is this a correct understanding of how you think about this uh i would partially agree yes because i did like uh i did engage with peer-to-peer learning and collective learning as i um said about that project but um actually on like a very personal level i learned a lot um from my school uh both like undergrad and high school elementary school middle school in ukraine Uh, i learned a lot by um self-learning outside of school by um doing a lot of extra readings um, and maybe like exploring my passions from learning through reading different books, which we didn't necessarily do at schools. So um, while uh, 
learning together in groups might be beneficial. I guess you can also explore your own passions personally um, if you do self-learn, um, but that is a long journey, I believe. You can also do that through collective learning, of course. Thank you. So now I don't have the answer to the question I asked uh, earlier, which is why is it meaningful to you when you help people and you were mentioning this. So please explore more or tell me why is self-improvement so good for you, but when other people you recommend for them collective learning or is that what's happening there? Because it seems to me to be like a contradiction of you preferring self-learning and self exploration of books and knowledge on your term but for helping people you like more collective approaches to learning rather than encouraging the independent learning of others yeah sorry for that confusion i actually think that they go um, hand in hand one can greatly contribute to another um i think you, i wouldn't uh, necessarily like prioritize one of them because I did learn through both through self-learning and through collective learning through like seminars I'm having right now by hearing from other people I think I benefit greatly from both um, so yes there is no one answer for that um, but that would be my answer that they do benefit from one another thank you so it's systems thinking where each one is uh, like a virtuous cycle of of putting charge into the other and the other turbocharging individual learning, turbocharging co collective learning and collective learning, turbocharging individual learning. Is this correct? Yes, I totally agree that there is definitely like a feedback uh, loop or causes that relate to both. Um, and yeah, feedback loop of one reinforcing another. Um, I think maybe collective learning um, inspires you to um, look for different um, passions that you become interested in and that leads you to maybe collective learning in um, that sphere or something. So I do believe there is definitely a feedback loop happening between both. I like that. And I want to know the emotional, Andri. We're being too intellectual. I'm trying to get to the emotions <laughs> and I understand you think a lot. Okay, let's go separately in a different way. When people hear about you or first meet you, what is something about you they don't expect and they wouldn't even know if you didn't tell them? Like something unexpected about Andri? Oh, um, that's a very hard question because I'm trying to look at myself from perspective of others. Um, I just think that human beings, us, are very complex and there's just so much that you uh, wouldn't know just by coming to a person and even talking to a person for like five minutes, you still wouldn't grasp what happened in the past. But yeah, what happened in the past is probably like my experiences in Ukraine, my passions that I, uh, and initiatives that I did in Ukraine, people might not think that wouldn't be the first thought that people think of me. Uh, yeah, that's one way to put it. Thank you. And are you a highly social person? Or are you more of an introvert who escapes from your cave to, <laughs> to do initiatives to help uh, communities and societies, but cannot wait to return to isolation and introspection and reflection on your own? Great question. I think that comes back to like um, our discussion on escaping from cities. I, I do 
tend to be social. I also do tend to be more um, alone with my thoughts or more alone with my learning. So um, I I think I'm just um, trying to balance it out uh, properly to achieve both. I'm not focusing on one too much. Yeah, finding a balance for me, I think, was uh, like something successful because I got the sides of both and I benefited from both too. Thank you. It's an absolutely great answer. And then to ask you then even more, because I'm looking for the passion. So I'll ask it directly. (laughs) What is something that really makes you feel alive, that makes you feel passionate, that makes you feel this day was absolutely special, incredible, and I love it? So I think uh, there's so many things that would make my day special. But relating to passions, it would definitely be about um, people, seeing people benefit from what I do. Would that be data analytics? Would that be like a piece of writing I produce or a piece of um, like historical analysis I produce too? I think um, just seeing how people engage with it or how people engage like with the projects I have organized, um, seeing like the direct impact on actual people after something was made or organized. Um, is what keeps me um, doing something I am passionate about, which um, probably is not very narrowed down, but it is helping people and doing um, projects and uh, analyses for social good. Yeah. Thank you. So what I'm sensing is you like the pragmatic impact, which makes you more similar to Nikola Tesla, rather than to Einstein, and I'm not saying, no, both are amazing. I'm not saying like Einstein is better or whatever, but Einstein, he really cared more about the beauty of the idea. So he was a purist in the intellectual terms and didn't really care about the practicalities as much as the beauty of the idea itself. While Nikola Tesla was focused on the impact and the realistic change in the world that his ideas and projects would do is this correct i mean yes nick uh tesla is i guess he's a very different human from me also he had different experiences but that seems like um i would definitely explore his ideas or follow some of his ideas um but i am trying to find my own ways um to approach it um through different activities and through my um ways of thinking and improving okay trying to find your own ways and i love that you try to Uh, like take everything and make it absolutely categorized into a very specific box and which is nice. It works as a a historian and therefore you spoke about finding your own way. Well, as a writer, how did you find your voice? Um, I think also relating back to people, I found my voice um, or I am finding my voice um, through um, people through research about people that I am doing, whether that would be academics or maybe some of my personal projects or learnings, um, definitely relates back um, to people listening about their stories, narratives about the people, um, their voices to find my own voice. Thank you, Andri. It was a pleasure. If you were to share any kind of lesson or advice or something that is relevant to you these days that you're thinking about that maybe the listeners will enjoy, what would you share? 
Um, something that I think many people would share that you should never stop learning and improving. There, it just there isn't a stop sign. Um, you should probably go and learn some more, and it doesn't stop within your undergraduate uh, undergraduate um, degree, within your high school degree, within within masters or PhD. You are living on this planet for many many years, and I think you can find some free time or set some time for yourself for learning um, and you'll benefit for, uh, from it at any time because there's just so much information and so many resources available for you. Uh, and I think you should take advantage of them at any point in your life. I agree 1000%. And to conclude, if you were to share just a few words about Ukraine and your thoughts on Ukraine, as well as if people want to connect with you, to communicate with you, to follow the projects you're working on what are the best social channels or ways to do that um to people uh, who never learned about ukraine ukraine is very diverse um both within its people within the society it has uh the traditions um uh, that exist in different localities of ukraine to its nature ukraine um is very diverse would be my say to all those people um, the channels, I think there are many um, resources in Ukraine currently developing uh, that um, people can engage with that are more about critical thinking and uh, that they have quite good evidence and data analysis. Um, one would be Vox Ukraine. Um, there are many initiatives that are related to Vox Ukraine, but that's just the first one that comes up um, in my mind. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and I wish you a great day. Andri. Thank you so much for interviewing me and inviting me. Have a great day too.